The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Let's go ahead and uh, look to God's Word here. Uh, But first I want to ask you a question to meditate upon. In your own heart, you don't have to answer this out loud. But I think it would be good to get our thoughts going and warmed up as we're ready to hopefully study God's Word together and receive His truth. But my question of the day for you, and this is for believers, for Christians, those of you who profess to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The question of the day is, what is your greatest desire as a Christian? What's your greatest desire as you live this life as a Christian? What is your greatest desire? Just think about that for a moment. What might you say? There might be multiple answers, and maybe they complement one another. There's no right or wrong one answer. I think the right answer does intersect with a certain theme that's clearly taught in Scripture. But as a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, what is your greatest desire in this life? Well, some obvious answers, I think, many of us would say. Well, to be like Jesus. To be like Christ. That's a legitimate answer. That's actually a biblical answer. My greatest desire in this life is to be like Christ. To be like Jesus. If you're parents, we even tell our children that, right? We encourage them at the dinner table with their siblings. You need to act like Jesus. You need to be like Jesus. And we think there are implications there. We think that means something. We assume that our second grader knows what that means. Or our first grader, they clearly understand your implications of what you're asking of them or expecting. So that should be the heart's desire of every Christian, to be like Christ. Romans 8 tells us that is a desire because that's what God is trying to do. That's his desire for us in this life. Romans 8.28, the process of salvation through sanctification during the entirety of our Christian life here on earth is all about God trying to conform us to the image of Christ. That's Romans 8. And actually that was a plan that he conceived in eternity past for every single one of us. So that would be God's greatest desire Because that is his plan. That's actually what he's doing if you really are a Christian. He is conforming you to the image of Christ. What does that mean? Uh, He's trying to make us like Jesus. More and more like Jesus. So what is your greatest desire as a Christian? Hopefully it's to be like Christ. Next question. In light of that, what does it mean to be like? If you had to flush that out for your second grader, Uh, And you explain, well, what does it mean? Yeah, Daddy, I want to be like Jesus. Or just as a Christian, yeah, I do want to be like Christ. But what does that mean? To be like Christ means like to do what? What did Jesus do? How is it that you want to emulate and model after Jesus? To be like Christ means to fill in the blank. To be like Jesus means, and then maybe you got all kinds of words you'd fill in the blank. What does it mean to be like Christ, to be like Jesus? To be like Jesus is to be kind, you might say. Or to be like Jesus is to be loving. To be like Jesus is to be 
good. Those are all true. Uh, to be like Jesus is to be gentle. Usually when we're talking to our children, these are the words that we mean. To be like Jesus, to be fair or to be just. But I don't know if on your list as you were thinking, well, I want to be like Jesus. That's my greatest heart's desire. And to be like Jesus means to be one who always tells the truth. Because that's what Jesus did. He was a truth teller everywhere he went. Or to be like Jesus, according to Peter. Peter says in his epistle as Christians, we need to follow the model of Christ. And what was that? He modeled for us how to suffer. I want to be like Jesus. That, then you're admitting, well, then I want to know how to suffer. I want to welcome suffering. I want to suffer like he suffered. I want to embrace suffering. That's not really a happy thought like, or a simple one like being kind, being loving. But that's true. Uh, that's what Peter said. Follow the model of Christ. And his pattern was one of suffering. And there's another one. If you want to be like Christ, then you need to be given to speaking the truth, but also you need to be given to regularly warning people. Warning. I don't know if that was in your list. It's not in many popular lists. What was Jesus like? I want to be like him. Uh, well, I want to be a person who follows Christ, and one thing that he did regularly, routinely, always in his ministry, always in his teaching for three and a half years, was he was constantly and forevermore warning people. Warning his own family members, his own siblings who didn't believe during the course of his ministry. Warning his immediate 12 continually. Warning the greater group of disciples that followed him. Warning, war, uh, warning the masses and the crowds. Warning his opponents, especially the Jewish leadership. Constant warning. Well, as a, a Christian, I want to be like Jesus. Okay, then your life should be given over to and prioritized as regularly warning people, and warning them about the most important realities in the world, warning them about eternal realities, spiritual truths, that kind of warning, not superficial, shallow things. Uh, well, I don't like to talk about bad news. Well, I'm, I'm an optimist, not a pessimist. Well, you're not a realist then, because Jesus was truth. He spoke about truth, and he constantly warned people, and we've been preaching through uh, several sermons now, this one sermon in Luke chapter 12. If you go ahead and you've got your Bible, you can look at chapter 12. We are now halfway through the Gospel of Luke. We actually have made it through most of Jesus' public ministry in terms of that three-and-a-half-year period. Most of that was spent in Galilee where he preached in literally every town all throughout Galilee. Everybody was exposed to his ministry there. And when he finished that, now it was time to head down to Judea and Jerusalem to the cross. To fulfill his mission. And that's where he is. As he's uh, meandering down with his disciples. And a group of people. And with his uh, women disciples as well. And they're making their way. Strategically this last maybe six month period. Where he's going to culminate. With his work at the cross. And so that's where he is, is. He's on the road down to Jerusalem. And the vicinity there. And that's where he is in Luke chapter 12. So this is the end of his ministry. Uh, along the way somewhere around the vicinity of Jerusalem. Or in the outskirts. Or maybe uh, even in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus preaches this sermon. This is Luke chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to chapter 13, verse 9. So note that this whole sermon goes together. Chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to 13, verse 9. This was one occasion. And this is a summary of a sermon. We don't know how long it took. But here in the Bible, and look, it's very long. This is one of the longest 
uh, sermons or discourses that Jesus has given recorded in the four Gospels. The only ones longer are the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then also Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, at the very end of his life. And this is one of the longest, Luke chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to chapter 13, verse 9. It doesn't get much press. People aren't familiar with it for whatever reason. But it is loaded, and we've seen that. Almost, what, 80 verses? And it's a summation of Jesus' preaching. We already saw who the audience was. It's mind-boggling. We can't even conceive it. Chapter 12, verse 1 says uh, that he was speaking to the crowds, the multitudes, and there were many thousands, actually tens upon tens of thousands. There were ten thousands of people. So that a plurality of ten thousands. So 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000, 100,000, we don't know how many, but it was just one massive crowd. It's outside. It's without electrical amplification. Uh, we don't know how loud Jesus was talking, but maybe he was in a strategic place where his voice could amplify going down the hill from the water, whatever. But if there's 20, 30,000 people, they want, they're fascinated and they want to hear this rabbi, this miracle worker, this one who gives out free food, this one who is not afraid of the leadership, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so there are many people very curious to hear another sermon or discourse or lecture by this rabbi from Galilee. And because there were so many, they wanted to hear. So they're crushing in on one another. That's literally what it says. There were so many people. They were crushing in on one another. Stepping on one another. So that's the context. That's the audience. It's a, just this massive crowd of people. Close in proximity to him are his disciples. Probably the 12 apostles at this point. And maybe some of the, the women who had been following him. No doubt he's got the leadership uh, sprinkled throughout the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, his enemies who've been trying to kill him for three years now. So we've talked about that. This is a mixed audience. And you go through the whole sermon, which we've done, and now we're getting to the conclusion. We're going to pick up at verse uh, 54 today. And if you go back and just review this, and keeping in mind, okay, this is one crowd, this is one delivery, this is one discord, discourse, and you look at all the topics that Jesus has addressed, there are many different topics. It's very diverse, very varied. Touches on just about everything regarding a biblical worldview. And at the same time, if you look at chapter 12, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 13, verse 9, all those verses, you could unify or knit them all together with one overriding theme that unites this entire discourse together. I'd say there's an overarching theme. And if you haven't picked up on it yet, that's a good thing to think about. That's good for your Bible reading when you read a Bible passage. You've got to look for those kind of things. That's being a good Bible student. Thinking strategically, logically, systematically, trying to be in sync with the mind of God who is the ultimate logical mind and true history. And Jesus himself. Jesus was very deliberate in what he was teaching here this day to this massive crowd. This was it. This was one of the last opportunities he had of an audience, of a listening audience of tens of thousands of people before he died. Actually, before they're screaming for his blood with their fists in the air. So he has a captive audience in that regard. But what's the overriding theme? I would say it's what I refer to easier. What did Jesus do routinely everywhere he went in all of his teaching and all of the Gospels? It's clear he warned people. He constantly was warning people. 
He was warning unbelievers. He was warning hypocrites. He was warning his friends. He was warning his disciples. He was warning his family. That's what he did. His ministry was a warning ministry. His teaching was a warning ministry. That's actually the obligation of every Christian. That should typify our evangelism. We give good news, but we don't give good news without warning. We give good news in the context of warning. You haven't closed the deal with an unbeliever when you're sharing the gospel if you did not give warning, an appeal, an obligation. Here's what you're now accountable to. Here are the consequences. This is warning. This is the model of Jesus. This is his preaching. That is the overriding theme in this entire section. Chapter 12, verse 1 all the way down to the end. And so today and next week, we're going to see how Jesus closes out this sermon to tens of thousands of people in light of everything, everything that he has said. He has given the good news. He has warned. He has comforted. He has given them things to think about, how to be discerning. It's loaded. But one thing that overrides it all and knits it all together and gives it that blessed, beautiful, divine unity is this theme of warning from the Son of God and literally a warning from God Almighty, your Creator, your Judge, who could also be your Savior. It's real simple. Look at chapter 12, verse 1, when I say about warning. The first word out of his mouth in this sermon was, Beware! That's a warning. It's an ominous warning. Well, how does it end? Well, he goes all the way through. Go to chapter 13, because we're going to see this next week. How does he close it? Chapter 13, verse 5, one of the last things he says is repent. That's a warning. Repent. Turn from your ways. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. So those are the bookends. Warning and warning. And all throughout, weaved all throughout is more and more warning. We haven't looked at this, so just real quick. Look at all the warnings. I'm not even listing them all. Verse 2, another warning right after he said, beware. Everything that has been covered up, all your secrets in your life, it's all going to be unveiled at the end of the age. God is going to disclose everything. That's judgment. That's warning. Verse 2. Chapter 12, verse 5. He said, fear God. Fear God. Fear him at the end of verse 5. Why? Because God can kill you. Isn't that startling? Wow, that doesn't sound like a loving God. Well, this is what Jesus said. If you don't have a right relationship with him, the moment you breathe your last in this life, God will kill you, separate you from himself for all eternity. That's hell. That's eternal judgment. Another warning. Fear God. Look at chapter 12, verse 9. Another warning about the Son of Man. Who's that? That's Jesus. Yes, the blessed Savior, but he's more than that. He's also the judge. Another warning. If you don't treat the Son of Man the right way, if you don't treat Jesus the right way, if you don't respond properly to who Jesus says He is, the Lord, then you will be judged. It's as simple as that. Well, what is, what's, the, what's the warning? Well, if you don't confess me, if you don't give your life to me, if you don't submit to me as the Savior, then you will be denied. That's verse 9. Jesus gave that warning about Himself. God will kill you. Jesus will deny you. And then the Holy Spirit, verse 11, another warning. He won't forgive you. If you reject the true view of God, if you reject Jesus Christ, not only will you be killed by the Father and separated for all eternity and denied by Jesus and not allowed into heaven, you will receive no forgiveness of sin from the Holy Spirit. That's warning. Verse 10. Verse 11, he warns his disciples, and if you do embrace me, I'm going to warn you about 
Get ready. The world will hate you. There's another warning. That's for believers. You will suffer. You will suffer. Then he goes on in the parable, chapter 12, verse 20, talking to the multitudes. And he talks about this man who was just, uh, all he cared about was materialism and amassing wealth and only thinking about the superficial realities of this life with his temporal perspective and not thinking of the spiritual and the eternal and the next life and the creator who he's accountable to. And he gave that parable and said, that man, you could die tonight. You could die today and lose your soul. Another warning. And that's to everybody. You can die today. There's no guarantee. Life is but a vapor. Life is fragile. Life is a part of, I mean, sorry, death. death. Death itself is a part of this life, and that's what Jesus reminded. Another warning. You could die today, verse 20. Another warning in verse 35. He says, be ready, because I'm coming back. Be ready, verse 35. He says it repeatedly several times. Be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready. When I leave, I will return. And when I return, I won't come as the humble, blessed Savior. I will come as judge. I will come as king of kings. Be ready. That's a warning. Then he gets really graphic. And if you aren't ready when the king returns, the Lord Jesus, in verse 46, when Jesus comes back and you deny him, you don't know him, you have rejected him, then he will cut you up in pieces. That's what it says, verse 46. Jesus said that. That's another startling statement. And we see the imagery of that in detail in Revelation 19 at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the word of God, and out of his mouth is a sharp two-edged sword. And with it he smites the nation, and the blood from the nations and his enemies is splattered all over his robe. That's what Revelation 19 says. That's what Jesus is talking about. Another warning. Then verse 48. Not only when he returns, some are going to get a flogging. That's verse 48. A flogging? What's that? A whipping, a beating. There will be consequences from the judge when he returns. And then verse 49, we saw this in our last sermon. Jesus says, he kind of summarizes all of it. By the way, if you thought I came to bring peace, well, you're wrong. I came to cast fire upon the earth. That is judgment. That is warning. I came to bring division. Particularly, and it starts at home. Religion divides the home. Commitment to Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, creates division among family members. That's what he said right here. The, the members of your own family will become your enemies over what you think about Jesus Christ. That was the last sermon. That's where we left off. Can you imagine this crowd? You know, these tens of thousands of people, maybe some of them traveled all the way from Galilee, which many crowds did. Because they just want, they were fascinated. Oh, maybe he's giving free food again. Oh, I need a miracle. This guy's amazing. So he did have that curious, interested party who followed him around everywhere, the, the pots of paparazzi or whatever. Then there were his disciples. Maybe there were some people in the local vicinity there who actually lived in Jerusalem and heard, oh, yeah, that rabbi, the, the Nazareth. Teacher, oh yeah, that guy that came three years ago. Remember that three years ago at the feast when there were two million people here in Jerusalem? And it was just totally packed with all those people in midday. Remember he made that uh, disturbance in the temple and he started throwing tables around and yelling and screaming like a maniac? I want to go see that guy again. He's still around? Three years later, who knows? Maybe some of those people were there. So we don't know what was in this mixed crowd. Probably all those very... But so many of them are like, oh, I want to go here. Maybe they haven't heard him for a while. Um, 
And can you imagine? When they finally get there, Jesus gives this discourse, and it is just one uh, warning, scathing warning after another. I mean, they must have been, you would think at least that they were kind of in awe or in shock. It's like, wow, I wasn't expecting this. Or some, no doubt, were, who does he think he is? Well, we know that there were some people that answered that way. Because that's why he says what he says in verse 54. We've got this crazy transition that just seems to come out of nowhere in verse 54 in the context. In light of what came before, and you're like, wow, why, why is he saying this? Well, the reason he's saying it, verses 54 to 59, it's just this very strong warning is because the entire discourse is about warning. Why is he saying it? Because he knows his time is limited. Why is he saying it? Because he knows he's going to the cross. Why is he saying it? Because he knows the scriptures will be fulfilled. Why is he saying it? Because he knows that the scriptures say that his own people will turn against him. Why is he saying it? Because he already knows that few there be that find it. The gate is narrow. The road is narrow. He's already said that. One last warning. He knows. He's pleading with them. So that's so. This is not out of context. So let's look at it, verses fifty-four to fifty-nine. Then next week we're actually going to look at uh, that same day and the same discourse, but an entirely different topic, yet maintaining that same theme of warning to the crowd. And there's so much there that we, I just had to break it up into two uh, parts there. So let's look at verses fifty-four to fifty-nine. He's he just finished. Telling them that, by the way, I came into the world to, to cast fire, ju- the, judgment, uh, the fire of judgment on the earth among people. Meaning, the truth about me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. I came to call sinners to repentance. These Jewish religious people, they didn't like that. They didn't think they were sinful people. They knew that the Old Testament... Old Testament called them the elect of God. They were separate from the Gentiles and the pagans of the world. So they have an overinflated uh, thoughts about themselves and their religious identity. They're good with God. They're okay with Yahweh. And especially the Jewish leadership believe that. And here comes Jesus says, no, you're not. You are sinful. You are wicked. You must be born again. You must repent. You're evil to the core in your heart. He's been saying that for three years. They don't like it. And so that's why he divides people. The truth, the truth divides. He didn't purposely try to divide, pit people against one another. It's just speak the truth and people will automatically, naturally divide. If you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, there were people close to you, maybe some of which surprised you, who split away from you, abandoned you, ostracized you, isolated away from and you weren't even expected. It was like, whoa, what's going on here? Well, that's what Jesus does. He is the light. You represent the light. If you're not saved, you are darkness. You, you love your sin, John 3 says. And the darkness does not love the light. They don't want to be around you. And that's what's going on here. So that's what Jesus said would happen with him as the truth. Calling people to repentance, offering them forgiveness through him, his life, his death, his resurrection. And so now he says this. Let's look at it. Verses 54 to 59. Uh, Jesus is uh, one of his last warnings to people to repent so that they might embrace him 
and be saved. So this is, even though it's a stern warning, it is evangelistic. Jesus is giving an invitation. It's not too late. There will be a time when it is too late. He'll say that in verse 59. Right now, it's not too late. As long as you're alive and breathing, it is not too late. When you have breathed your last and rejected Christ, then it is too late. Your fate is sealed for all eternity. So let's see what Jesus has to say. Really, it's, uh, he gives two parables to emphasize his truth of warning here. Uh, the first parable is in verse 54 to 56. The second parable is verse 57 to 59. And in terms of hermeneutics or rules of interpretation, uh, one of the golden rules about a, a parable is what? Well, number one, don't allegorize it all over the place, trying to find meaning under every rock in the parable. Don't do that because that's not what you're supposed to do. Uh, Jesus' parables, usually it's just he's trying to emphasize one simple main truth. That's all. Just one truth. And that's what he's doing here with these. He gives a parable about the weather. And the one truth is there that... Um, these religious Jews, all of not just the leadership, who had their Old Testament, they were educated, they were informed, they grew up in religious homes, they grew up in the synagogue, they know Genesis to Malachi like the back of their hand. All these prophetic uh, statements about the coming Messiah and this parable that he gives highlights that they didn't see the solution. They didn't see the solution to their sin problem. They missed it. What's the solution? Jesus the Messiah. That will be the point of the parable. Here I am. Then the other parable, uh, it's in the, a legal context, going to see a judge, that's verse 57 to 59. The one truth there that Jesus is trying to communicate to these people is that they didn't see the threat. They didn't see the imminent coming threat of God's judgment upon them for not embracing the Messiah. So the first parable highlights they didn't see the solution, that's Jesus the Savior. And then the second one is they didn't see the threat and that is impending or uh, imminent judgment if you reject Christ. That, it, that's all there is to it. That is the warning. And then even more grace upon grace, because he goes on in chapter 13, verse 5, and says it's not too late. Repent. Repent. And then you can disregard those two parables, if you do. So let's look at these two parables that highlight the warning. Uh, verse 54. And he was also saying to the crowds. So he's also talking to the crowds. Why also? Well, because chapter 12, verse 1, it started out and said he was talking to his disciples. Chapter 12, in the middle of verse 1, Jesus began saying to his disciples, those who actually knew him, followed him. Disciple means learner, someone who is committed to you as a student, not necessarily saved. It's not the synonymous with the apostles. His disciples are followers. They're, they're in the school of Jesus. They, they were enrolled. Their spiritual status is a big question mark. In other words, these aren't people that just came for the first day. Oh, this is Jesus. They're not meeting him for the first day. This is a familiar bunch of people. They're in the crowd. So that's chapter 12, verse 1. So he's talking to his disciples. So it's all the regulars, including his apostles. So that's chapter 12, verse 1. And then again in verse 22. And he said to his disciples... And then in 32, do not be afraid, little flock. That might be his apostles right there. So he's making distinctions. <clears throat> I think he was also talking to the Pharisees who were in the crowd at the end of verse 1 in chapter 12 because he says, beware of the Pharisees. 
man, Jesus in here. They're out there. Maybe in row number one right there, Mr. Pharisee. Well, he makes a, a transition here. So after talking to the disciples and giving them the truth he wanted them to hear, then he's not ignoring the entire crowd. Oh, here they are, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000. What would the Father have me say to these 50,000 people? Well, here it is, verse 54. It's a warning. And he's, he was also saying to the crowds, and here's the parable. When you see a cloud rising in the west, okay, so this is here in Jerusalem, and to the west is the Mediterranean Sea. It's right there. You look on a map, there it is. So when you look to the west, and you see the Mediterranean Sea, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And lo and behold, so it turns out. And you can do that today. I remember when we went to Israel, we flew into Tel Aviv, and you could see the Mediterranean Sea. It's just like here in California. You're close enough to the ocean, and you see a dark cloud horizon. You know it's coming your way, and you know it's rain. You don't need modern technology. This was true 2,000 years ago. So it was so obvious. And, it, and so it turns out you, you're pretty good at actually reading basic weather. You can predict the weather. You can look at the signs. That was a sign. It was a cloud filled with rain, water. It was a sign. It pointed to a greater reality. It pointed to something future. It pointed to something undeniable. It's going to rain. Well, you're right. You're good at reading some signs. You're good at reading superficial signs. And this was minimal evidence, by the way. You're good at reading minimal evidence and signs and come to a very confident conclusion it's it's going to rain then he uh, says it again verse 55 but in a different way and when you see the south wind blowing so this is from a different direction maybe down egypt and the desert area a different kind of wind you got wind coming off of the water that's a wet wind but when you got wind coming off of the desert that's very dry a dry, it's not bringing rain. What is it bringing? It's bringing heat. We call it a scorcher, right? Verse 55, and when you see the south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. So on two points, Jesus says, you're right. You're good at reading the weather, at predicting when it rains and predicting when it's going to be a scorcher. And you make these dogmatic yet accurate conclusions on minimal evidence. Minimal Verse 56, you hypocrites. I mean, isn't that startling? Just out of nowhere. You hypocrites. Can you imagine some of these people in the audience? Maybe who have never met Jesus before. Maybe they're close to the front row. And he's calling with his finger in their face saying, you hypocrites. Because he's talking to everybody there. The crowds, the multitudes. How could Jesus do that? Well, he's the Son of God. How could Jesus do that? At times, he was allowed by the Father to read the minds of the people. Not all the time, but if the Father so granted it, he did. How could Jesus say that? Every, everything he said was true, without exception. This was deserved. This was an accurate diagnosis. There were countless hypocrites in that audience. By the way, what kind of hypocrites? There's different kinds of hypocrites. These were, they weren't political hypocrites. These were religious hypocrites. They were the worst kind because they had the truth. They had the Old Testament. You can be a hypocrite in another religion that has nothing to do with the Bible. That's actually not as bad as being a hypocrite when you have all of God's truth and claim that you know this truth and then you misrepresent this truth. Hypocrite. A good word for hypocrite. You religious hypocrite. That's how you could think it. Uh, pretender is another good word. 
you pretenders, and literally you religious pretenders, tens of thousands of you. I mean, what if you were sitting there in the audience? I thought about what, what I would do. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, yeah, maybe that guy, not me. Well, you don't know me. They, they don't know who they're dealing with here. Jesus, the Son of God, Savior of the world, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, who can see the very heart, mind, conscience of a human being as God the Father allows him to do that. And on this occasion, obviously, he's giving the right diagnosis. You religious pretenders. It's one of the things Jesus came to do is shatter their man-made religion that was smothering the truth of the Bible, legalism, and everything about it. Quoting the Bible, quoting God, misrepresenting it every step of the way. The epitome of religious hypocrisy. You hypocrites. Uh, you know how to analyze or discern or examine or interpret. Those are all the different English translations of this word he uses here. You know how to, and this is a very deliberate process. This isn't just a, a flippant kind of a thing. This is test to test and to prove and to analyze and assess and then make a conclusion based on the observations. That's what the word means. Verse 56, you know how to analyze, discern, examine, interpret the signs of the dark cloud over the sea, of the hot wind coming from the south and come to a deduction or conclusion based on your observations, and, and you're right. But what's sad, what is pathetic, what is worse, what is hypocritical, what is damning that you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, the weather, how shallow and superficial is that? But you do not know how to analyze or discern or examine or interpret this Present time. That is the key phrase in this passage. That's why he's so upset. This present time. What is this present time? Um, there are a few words in your Greek New Testament for the word time. Chronos, chronology. Orderly time, just like it sounds. As time passes. Click, 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 click. Chronos. And then there's kairos or chiron. That's the word here different word, uh, refers to many times in the context different epics in history, different seasons in life, different seasons in history, different seasons and times or dispensations, if you will, in God's overall program of human history. That's, that's the word used here, is you Jews who have the Old Testament and hundreds of prophecies about the world, the future, the Messiah, me, in detail. And yet you missed it. All the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, they point to Jesus. They point, you should know this. You missed the time. You, you couldn't discern it. This present time. It's a technical phrase. This present time. Right now, the season of the Messiah. The first coming of Christ. The suffering servant. The Old Testament was clear. Genesis 3.15 predicted the Messiah would be coming to overcome sin. A generic truth, but they should have been expecting it. He would be a man. He would come from the loins of Eve. He would be a, a male individual. But the Old Testament got more specific from that. Did you know that in Micah 5.2, the Old 
the Old Testament, a very well-known passage, predicted where the Messiah would be born. He would be born in Bethlehem. They all knew Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It was public knowledge. Herod knew this. He tried to kill Jesus when he was born, and he knew he was born in Bethlehem, so he slaughtered all kinds of baby boys in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Why? And how did he know that? He consulted Micah 5.2. Herod, he wasn't even a Jew. He was a half-breed. And he knew this. He knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, let alone that star in the sky, that brilliant star in the sky that just was a warning to the world. The Messiah has come in fulfillment of Genesis, talking about the Messiah's star that would come. Sign after sign after sign after sign. So not only did the Old Testament that they were supposed to be students of, this was their religion, this was their book. By the way, they were supposed to be looking for the Messiah. Every Orthodox good Jew in Jesus' day would have admitted that, yes, we are looking for the Messiah, we are waiting for the Messiah, we are praying for the coming of the Messiah. And here's your Old Testament that predicted he would be born in Bethlehem. Not only that, all over the prophecies, uh, the, the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, it said what the plan of the Messiah would be. It said he would be a suffering servant. It, he would come lowly first. And that was true of Jesus. Uh, 2 Samuel said that he would be a descendant of King David. Did you know that it was on public record in the temple that Jesus was a descendant of David? And to be the rightful king and the rightful Messiah, you had to be of the lineage of of David. He had it on both sides with Mary and Joseph. It was undeniable. That's why nowhere in the Gospels do you have any critic of Jesus, a scribe, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, ever discrediting him saying, oh, by the way, you're not from the family of David. They couldn't say that because they knew it was true. That would have been the easiest way to discredit Jesus and his claim to be Messiah and King of Israel because he wasn't descended from David. They could, it was undeniable. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah would be a son of David. The Messiah would come as a lowly, humble servant who was just like any other man. That was his appearance. So all these signs. And then the virgin birth. Isaiah 7, 14. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Predicting about the supernatural birth of the coming Messiah. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 7, 750 years before Jesus was born, God said, let me give you a sign, he said to the prophet and to the king of Israel. A sign, something clear, visible, empirical, objective, that points to something specific. The virgin birth. The virgin birth, it wasn't revealed only in a corner. It was declared to all those who knew at the time of his birth. It was first given through the angels to Mary, but then the word spread. That's why in even Jesus' enemies in John chapter 8, when he's 30-some-odd years old, they call him a bastard. You know what that meant? That meant you don't have, we know you don't have, you don't, we don't know you, who your father is. They couldn't identify a human father. Well, that's true, because he didn't have a human father. But they turned it on its ear and accused Mary of being immoral, having a child out of wedlock. But they couldn't identify the father. The reason they couldn't identify the father is because Jesus was virgin born in fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Talk about a sign. So this is, this is the issue. You couldn't, seriously, with all that evidence, with all the prophecies, I haven't even started talking about what Jesus has been doing for three years, right? For these people. 
From the time he began his ministry, the first thing he did is he did a miracle. And where did he do that miracle? It was in public for everybody to see. What did he do? He did the unthinkable. He did the unprecedented. He did what had never been done before. He turned water into wine in the presence of everybody standing there. Miracle after miracle after miracle. He fed thousands and th- over 20,000 people in the reproduction of the fish and the bread. He did that twice. Matthew 14, Matthew 15. Thousands of people. Nicodemus was so convinced. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel in John 3, he went up to Jesus and said, uh, we know that you come from God because nobody does the signs that you do. That's early on in his ministry. And he just kept amassing miracle after public, miracle after public, miracle. Many of which had never been done in the history of the world. Like in John 9. There was a man born blind and is over 30 years old and Jesus healed him publicly with witnesses. And even the text says in John 9, uh, this has never been done before. This has never been done. Not only did Jesus do miracles, he did miracles more than anybody had ever done in history, combined, and of such a nature that no one had done. Repeatedly, time and time again. So you've got all this evidence. You've got the prophecies of the Old Testament. You've got the miracles of Jesus Christ. You've got his authority in his teaching that they had never been heard like before at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 17. Their ears were stinging with the authority with which he taught. Never have we heard a man teach with this kind of authority. I mean, how much evidence does Jesus have to amass until these hardened hearts will believe? Well, it actually got to a point where Jesus started making public statements that, you know what? In Luke, later we're going to see, even if somebody was risen from the dead, they still will not believe. That, that is the hardness of sin. That's the blinding power, supernatural level of sin. It actually culminated in Matthew 12 when after all these miracles, they began to, they couldn't deny the miracles. That was just foolish. Okay, let's give it a new interpretation. We can't deny the miracles. Uh, Hey guys, so the uh, holy Pharisees, they have a holy huddle. From now on, um, here's the party line. Yes, he does miracles, but he does them by the power of Satan. Ready, break. And that's what they began to do. He does miracles by the power of Satan himself. Jesus said, that is blasphemy. That is unforgivable blasphemy. So, that's why they're hypocrites. You've had enough evidence. You don't need more evidence. By the way, we're going to see in Luke that the Pharisees are going to still be calling for evidence. Give us evidence. You keep saying you're the Messiah and the Savior. What's your evidence? Show us a sign. They keep saying that. Finally, Jesus said, you know what? I'm not going to show you a sign. You know who asked for a sign? A perverted generation. I'm not going to give you any sign. The only sign you're going to see from this point on is the sign of Jonah. I'm going to be in the the heart of the earth for three days. The sign of the resurrection. And you won't even believe that. You hypocrites. You didn't recognize the present time, the present season. So, the Old Testament was clear to these Jews. The coming Messiah was coming uh, to fulfill God's plan, to conquer Satan, to overcome sin. 
He's the theme of the entire Old Testament. This is what they've been waiting for for 2,100 years as a nation, 4,000 years as Old Testament history. And it culminates with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfills literally hundreds of these prophecies in detail. Where he would born, be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin like no one ever. That the plan would be that he would come as the suffering servant, lowly and humble, preaching the good news, says Isaiah 61, preaching the good news. That's what Jesus did. Not only that, he had the forerunner of John the Baptist. How much other evidence do you need? Who, with his megaphone for month after month after month, screaming at the top of his lungs... Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Behold the Lamb of God as he points to Jesus. To the Jews. They had plenty of evidence. How could you not recognize this time? Look at Luke. Go to Luke 19. Uh, and we'll, we'll spend more time on this. But it coincides with the statement you didn't recognize the time. Uh, you fast forward about six months. It's the last week of Jesus' life. It's about eight days before he dies. It's the triumphal entry in Jerusalem as he's coming in. And they're all in midday, Hosanna in the highest, son of David. And, so the, and they're waving palm branches and saying, oh, Jesus, you're the Messiah. That sounds good. Well, it was superficial. It was shallow. They would utterly turn on him in less than a week and cry for his blood. Crucify him, crucify him. These same people at the triumphal entry in uh, Luke 19. And so he, he enters in Jerusalem. He is not happy at all. Jesus is sad when he got to Jerusalem. Verse 41, after the triumphal entry, you would think he would be upbeat and happy. They love you. They've rolled out the red carpet. That is not his response. Verse 41, when he actually approached and arrived in Jerusalem, he saw the city of Jerusalem and he wept over it. He was brokenhearted. He was sad. He knew the truth. These people were shallow. They were superficial. Some of them were ignorant. They don't understand. And he said, as he wept over at Jerusalem, if you had only known, in Jerusalem, that's where it all happened, right? That was the fulfillment of it. That's where the Messiah would die. That's where the temple was. That's where God's precious uh, presence resided in the Old Testament. Verse 42, if you had only known in this day, see that phrase right there? In this day, today, this day. And it's not uh, only this day, it's the season of the Messiah. That's what it means by this day. At this time, this epoch in history. If you had known in this day, even you, you Jews, the things which make for peace, all you had to do was embrace your Messiah. You didn't. You rejected me. After three and a half years of preaching and teaching, wholesale as a nation, primarily for the most part, you have rejected your own Messiah. A few believed. Think about all that ministry and miracles and preaching and the tens of thousands of people that live in Israel that got exposed to his ministry for three and a half years. And when all is said and done, who's at his cross when he's being crucified? Very few. One of his apostles out of 12. The crowds aren't there to support him. Then he rises from the dead. And then who comes to see him when he's resurrected? He rises back, goes into heaven. And as he's leaving planet Earth in Galilee where he spent... 30 years of his life, there's only 500 people there to greet him. Only 500 people. That's after he's risen from the dead. Then in Jerusalem, on the day that the church begins, there's only 120 people. 120. Few there be that find it. Uh, so Israel as a nation, they missed the time. They missed the season. It was clear as a bell. It was in the Old Testament. They should have known. Not just where, not just who, but actually when he would be born. If you had known this day, uh, but no, now they have been hidden from your eyes. Judgment for the days will come in 70 AD, 40 years from now. The days will come upon you when your enemies, the Romans, will throw up a barricade against you 
Titus, and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground, and they did, the temple and the city of Jerusalem, and your children within you, and they will not leave you one stone upon another. They destroyed the temple. Why? Because you did not recognize, here's the key phrase, the time of your visitation. The time of your visitation, very specific technical phrase. Take us back to Luke chapter 1 when we opened up this gospel. And there's Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. And an angel came and told him the news about John's role in the coming Messiah. And it says that Zacharias, the spirit came upon him and he prophesied in the temple in public to people. And he said, and he was thanking God for he has visited his people. The Messiah has come. That visitation. That's what this is. You didn't recognize the time of your visitation. The time definite article, very specific, of your visitation, another definite article. Who's the your? It is the nation of Israel, the Jews, the people that should have known. They had it right here in Scripture. And he emphasizes the time. So should they have known the time? Yeah, they should. So go to Daniel chapter 9. This is one of the most amazing prophecies, I think, in the Old Testament because it is so specific, and yet the people are afraid of it. So here's Daniel in the Old Testament. It's about uh, 540 B.C. Daniel's an old man, maybe in his 70s. He's been in Babylon for 60 years. The angel comes to him, uh, gives him a prophecy, And just mark it down. Daniel 9, uh, verse 24 to 27. I'm just going to summarize it for you. The angel told Daniel, and Daniel told the world, and even wrote it down, exactly when the Messiah would be coming to earth in his first coming. Down to the year. Down to the month. Down to the week. And many scholars would say down to the very day. You read in your study Bible, it probably says that this prophecy was fulfilled on 9 Nisan 30 AD, the day of the triumphal entry that we just read in Luke 19. I'm not going to go through the whole passage. Uh, we will later when we get to Luke 19, but I'll just give you one verse, though, to maybe make it simple. If you wanted to just highlight Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Okay, remember, there's Daniel. He's seven years old. He's been praying, God, when are you going to bring the Messiah and fix everything for us like you promised you would? This is 540 B.C. God answers Daniel's prayer and said, Oh, okay, I'm going to send my angel. I'll tell you. Daniel, thanks for asking. I will tell you. Oh, by the way, Daniel, I know you were reading Jeremiah, and in Jeremiah I told you ahead of time that the Babylonian captivity would be exactly 70 years. So, yes, I'm into details with numbers. Daniel read that. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's been almost, it's 68 years, man. <laughs> Two more years, we're out of here. Is this the end in two years? That's why you gave him this one. No, it's, that's the end of the Babylonian captivity. We've got to wait more. We've got to wait another 483 years for the next phase, the next epoch, the next season, the next chiron in God's program. Verse 25, so you are to know and discern. Get it in your head. This is to the Jews. This is emphatic. You should know this. You should have this memorized. It's written in your own language. It is a prophecy. It is specific. 
You should know this. Every Jew in the audience in Luke 12, listening to Jesus, knew this verse. Or most of them did. Because they were commanded to as Jews. So you are to know and discern. In other words, it's not going to be so obscure you can't understand it. It's not inscrutable. There's clarity here. There's a context here. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there it is. There's a starting point. There's an ending point. There's a time frame here. It's very definitive. Well, when does this begin? Well, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. When did that happen? 445 B.C., mark it down. 445 B.C., the Persian emperor Artaxerxes gave permission to the Jews to go build Jerusalem. 445 B.C. You can read about it in the book of Nehemiah. 445 B.C. There it is. That's the beginning point. So you are to know. Pay attention to your calendar. Write it down. Put it in your iPhone. Issuing the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall come. So there it is. There's your answer. When is the Messiah coming? Well, he's coming at the end of this period that begins with the issuing, the decree given by the king, the pagan king, the Persian king, to allow the Jews to rebuild their city. And we know from history that happened in 445 B.C. And then a certain amount of time is going to go by, and then that's when the Messiah is coming. And he will deal with transgression of sin. And he will speak about his kingdom. Oh, well, can you get more specific, God? And God said, yeah, I will. You gave us a beginning date. What's the ending date? Well, the prince, there will be seven sevens, is the Hebrew phrase. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, a total of 69 sevens. Sevens represents years. It's a common phrase in your Hebrew text. 69 sets of seven. What is that? Do the math. It's 483 years. That's what he was saying. So, when the decree is given in 445 B.C., count 483 years, and that's when the Messiah comes. And if you do that, you end up around 30 A.D., which coincides when the triumphal entry happened as Jesus was about to give his life for the world. The Jews knew this. They knew where the Messiah would be born, who he was, why he came, what he preached, and even when he would be born. So go back to Luke chapter 12. You are hypocrites. So they don't have an excuse. Oh, we didn't know. No, they do know. That's why they're hypocrites. You've just ignored me. You love your sin more than you love Jesus. Verse 57 to 59. Here's his... He just gives another warning in light of this hypocrisy of not embracing Jesus Christ for who he is. Uh, here's another parable. In this parable, Jesus, it's legal. Jesus is the judge, basically, in this parable. And why do you not even, on your own initiative, judge what is right? You don't make right judgments. We just saw that. You know the weather, weather better than the Old Testament proph prophecies about identifying the Messiah. Verse 58, For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate in, before you go to court... On your way there, make an effort to settle with him. In other words, you got a conflict, deal with, settle out of court. Because if you go to court, man, that's bad news. Because then you have to face the judge. And by the time you face the judge, it is too late. You'll be pleading your case, I'm innocent, when you're actually guilty. And the judge will say, 
guilty and then you will be penalized accordingly. That's the point here. Settle out of court with the magistrate, otherwise you're going to be sent to the judge so that you may not so that he may not drag you before the judge, that's Jesus, and the judge will then turn you over to the officer or the prosecutor or the proctor or the constable or the guy that throws you in jail and has the key. What's jail? It's hell. Another warning. And the officer throws you into prison. And then once you are thrown by God, the judge, remember Jesus said, fear him, fear God, fear God alone. Not just people who can destroy your body, but fear God who can kill you, can kill the body and even destroy the soul in hell? That's what this is talking about. And it's your attitude towards the judge. Jesus is the judge. Embrace the judge. Bow the knee to the judge. Settle with the judge before you have to go to court with the judge. Otherwise, it'll be too late. You'll be thrown into prison. Verse 59, and Jesus says, And once that happens, I say to you, you will not get out of there. That's eternal hell that lasts forever until you have paid the very last cent. And you'll pay for all eternity because you rejected Jesus Christ. This is a startling warning, and yet at the same time, it's, it's really laced with the grace of God, right? It's not too late. If there is anybody here today that's listening, and you, don't, you are not confident that you know Jesus Christ personally, that you haven't bowed the knee, this is for you. These are the living, binding, authoritative, timeless words of the Lord Jesus Christ, who with the Father created you, and someday will be your judge. Whether you, if you die today, as he said... Or whenever you end this life, you need to get right with the judge. You need to get right with Jesus. You need to bow the knee. Now, bow the knee now in this life and confess to him, he is Lord. Because if you don't do it in this life, you'll have to do it in the next life anyway. When every knee shall bow the knee, right? Every knee shall bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord to the glory of the Father. I'd rather bow the knee in this life than in the next life and face an eternity apart from Christ and God in torment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together and again to study your word together. The scriptures, we thank you for Jesus Christ for preserving his word, his truth, the living word, which allows us to know Jesus for who he truly was, who he truly is, still. He is part of the triune God. He created the world with you, Father. We thank you for that. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sin to absorb wrath for sinners if they trust in him and impart eternal life, forgiveness of sin. And we thank you for that blessed good news. Those of us who know you, we thank you that you graciously decided to save us. And God, I do pray for those that we know who haven't embraced Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that you'd continue to work on their heart, you would use your truth, you would convict of sin, that you would strip away blindness from their own sin, from Satan himself, so they can see your light, your truth, and then bow the knee in this life, before it's too late, to Jesus Christ and be saved. And as a result, as always, you would receive the glory as a gracious Savior. That's our heart's desire. We love you. We thank you, Father. We commit all this to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.